What's the matter, Batman? No witty comeback, no threat. Then I'll provide the narration. I'll begin with how I peeled back the layers of the boy's mind. Though he bravely tried to fight it at first. You would have been proud to see him so strong. But all too soon, the serums and the shocks took their toll. And the dear lad began to share such secrets with me. Secrets that are mine alone to know, Bruce. It's true, Batsy. I know everything. And kind of like the kid who peeks at his Christmas presents, I must admit, it's sadly anticlimactic. Behind all the sturm and batarangs, you're just a little boy in a play suit crying for mommy and daddy. It'd be funny if it weren't so pathetic. No, what the heck, I'll laugh anyway. <laughs> I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Sheep lying, no good, rotten, fork-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, blah, blah. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. I'm Scott Gardner, your co-host for this very special episode, and Chris Honeywell is on the crapper at this hour. In 1989, I wandered into my local uh, Walden Books bookstore at the uh, mall where I lived and shelled out my very hard-earned fanboy dollars, 25 of them in fact, which was a lot of money at the time you know, when you consider that all the other funny books on the rack were only 75 cents. The book that I got was Batman Arkham Asylum by then newcomer and, you know, at least to the mainstream American superhero comics anyway, Grant Morrison. And thus began my long troubled history with that particular writer. 
Because while the rest of fandom drooled and fawned over it, I really walked away from that book feeling disgusted, disturbed, confused, infuriated, icky, and generally ripped off by DC Comics. So over the last 20 years, I continue to see Arkham Asylum praised and applauded, and it shows up over and over again on these lists of the best-selling and greatest graphic novels of all time, um, sometimes even mentioned as one of the greatest Batman stories of all time. All of this to my absolute, utter amazement. So every few years, you know, when I see this, I'll dust off my copy of Arkham Asylum and I'll give it another read, but it always ends the same way with going, nope, I still don't get it. And, you know, right back under the bookshelf it goes until, you know, a couple years later. So anyway, fast forward to today, and joining me for this episode to share his thoughts, opinions, and insights, and hopefully to help me as a Batman fan possibly make some sense of and maybe even quote-unquote see the light regarding Arkham Asylum is self-professed Grant Morrison fan and host of the Nuff Said podcast, my very good friend, Chris Johnson. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks. Oh, <laughs> hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Scott. It's good to be here, and here I go. Messing up the first thing I say in the episode. Hopefully that won't continue throughout the entire thing. <laughs> you want to do it uh, another take, or you... <laughs> no, it's it's comedy gold. It's All comedy right, gold. Good. Let's sit. <laughs> well, let's start off. Um, I want to hear how uh, how did your uh, your love affair, so to speak, with with Grant Morrison begin? G- just generally speaking, but also more to the point, how did you discover uh, Arkham Asylum specifically? All right. Well, my fandom for Grant Morrison's writing can be traced back to three uh, comic books. And they're all actually uh, recent comic books. The first is Grant Morrison's run on Batman. The second would be All-Star Superman. And the third would be the uh, widely hated Final Crisis. <laughs> and uh, to start off with Batman, I jumped on during his third story. He was telling the three ghosts of Batman because I was getting more into uh, single issues at that time when I had been trade only, uh, for the most of the time I'd been back in comics. I got back into comics around 2004. So I'd been mostly getting trades, but a couple, well, around the time I was doing the Amazing Spider cast, I figured that if I was gonna do this podcast, I'd probably wanna stay as up to date as possible and start getting single issues again. And I got really into single issues, and one of the ones I decided to get was the Batman series because I've always been a big fan of Batman. And so I decided to, you know, since this was, you know, Graham Morrison coming onto the table, he was the new writer. This was, you know, starting, it was fairly, fairly recent, him starting his run. I thought I'd start picking up his book, and so I started picking up The Three Ghosts of Batman uh, as my starting point. I went back and got uh, The Batman's Son and the Joker issue he had done. And I really enjoyed his uh, run a great deal. And then it got to R.I.P., and it was kind of culminating everything he'd been doing with his run into this one story arc. And so I went back to the beginning, and as I reread his run, it just jumped out at me, all these places where he'd been hinting at things to come and what he was doing with R.I.P., and it just blew me away that all these hints had been in place this entire time. It wasn't until 
you know, into RIP, going back and rereading it, that these things finally jumped out at me. And that was where I really enjoyed his writing, having this uh, additional value to it where it works, you know, reading the issue for the first time. But then when you look at, you know, a run of his in this greater scope, you see all these things you didn't see in it before. And that's one of the reasons I like his writing as much as I do. And then the second book, All-Star Superman. I know you're a huge fan of Superman, Scott. Honestly, he isn't high on my favorite superheroes list. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to drop the call right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I do like uh, what Jeff Johns was doing in uh, Action Comics also. But it was really All-Star Superman that I just really enjoyed the story that uh, Grant Morrison uh, was telling with that, and it was also my first exposure to uh, Frank Whiteley's artwork, uh, which is another, uh, it's a debate that comes off, whether you like his work or you don't like his work, but uh, just him and Morrison, just whenever they get together, they just are just perfect tandem with each other and just pr- produce some fantastic comics. And All-Star Superman, just uh, as someone who is not really the biggest Superman fan, I just really loved the, that entire 12-issue story that they crafted about that. And I'm still waiting for my absolute, if anybody from DC is listening right now. Um, <laughs> and then Final Crisis, which is uh, still to this day a uh, rather poorly looked upon uh, series. But uh, going back uh, to what I loved about his Batman run, I loved looking for all the little hints and subtext going on in all the issues with Final Crisis, and I also enjoyed it. Instead of the usual superhero events that have been coming out in recent years, where it's basically just a bunch of superheroes punching each other in the face for seven or eight issues, I liked how Morrison instead approached the event in these more subtle, like it wasn't page after page of superhero and villains fighting. Uh, There were certainly very catastrophic and uh, event-worthy occurrences within the story, but it wasn't on. It wasn't in the style that a lot of events uh, in recent years have been doing, and that was something I appreciated about it. So it was really those three comics that I just really became a fan of Grant Morrison. And around the time uh, the last issue of Final Crisis came out, I actually uh, went to my local library, uh, which has a pretty nice selection of trades. In it, you know, everything from you've got uh, DC showcases to Vertigo stuff to, uh, you know, just a couple of independent books. They have a really nice selection uh, my library, and I uh, decided to check out Arkham Asylum because I'd seen it in the library before, but I had never picked it up to read it. I don't know why, uh, because I've read, you know, all the other quote-unquote classic Batman stories, you know, your Dark Knight Returns, your year run by year one, I should say, but I never read Arkham Asylum, and since I was in this Morrison state of mind, I figured it was a good time to actually check it out, and I read it about, I think January is probably when I read it, and I really uh, enjoyed it, and then into preparing for this episode, uh, I did a little more research into, because I enjoyed it on the basic level of on its surface, but in preparing for this episode, I've done some research into what Morrison was going on with the story, and it just made me appreciate it even more. Now, I would re- be remiss if I didn't mention you also uh, 
host a co-host another show with our buddy Juan Castro called Final Crisis Analysis. Now, is that limited just to Final Crisis, or does that encompass all of uh, Grant Morrison's works? Um, that's just uh, Final Crisis. Uh, we're up in, up to Superman Beyond right now, which we should be done by now, but things came up with uh, both of us, and we're behind a lot farther than we'd want to be. And we're working on getting uh, the rest of the Final Crisis episodes out. But uh, it's just for Final Crisis. But Juan and I have talked uh, about maybe sometime in the future doing a podcast that focuses on everything Grant Morrison's written, at least stateside. You were talking about Grant Morrison's work on Batman, you know, the, the, the regular Batman title. Is that work a little more mainstream, if you know what I mean, as far oh. as its handling of Batman? Uh, very much so. And I can't remember, I think it might have been, yeah, it was in the uh, in this book, uh, which I'll talk about because this is uh, where I got a lot of the more uh, subtextual uh, things that are going on in Arkham Asylum. It's uh, called Grant Morrison, The Early Years. Uh, it was issued from uh, Seacart. Research and Literary Organizations by Timothy Callahan. And basically what it does, it's it's uh, uh, Callahan's analysis of a lot of Grant Morrison's really early comics like uh, Zenith, which was over in Europe, uh, Animal Man, Doom Patrol, Arkham Asylum, and the Batman Gothic story. And it's basically just going through and analyzing all the little references and symbolism and subtext and all that, going through uh, these different works by Grant. And there's also a little interview at the end with him. But he mentions that this was kind of, and I think I'll just read this one quote about Arkham Asylum, which is kind of his, what he, what Morrison set out to do with Arkham Asylum. He says, uh, the story's themes were inspired by Lewis Carroll, quantum physics, Jung and Crowley, its visual style by surrealism, Eastern European creepiness, Cocteau, Artard, that's probably not how you say it, but I have no idea how to pronounce most of these names. Uh, Svank Mejia, uh, the Brothers Quay, etc. The intention was to create something that was more like a piece of music or an experimental film than a typical adventure comic book. So this was this is really something more because there's two types of Morrison you're going to get in a story. You're either going to get the more mainstream and more widespread appeal type of Morrison, which is what you get in things like uh, JLA. Uh, All-Star Superman, and I'd also put his run on Batman into that category. And then you'll get things that are more experimental and more Morrison uh, going all out with, like, the Invisibles or Arkham Asylum. And I think his Batman run is more in line with being more appealing to the mainstream, than certainly more than Arkham Asylum. And I think that Batman Gothic is also more mainstream-aimed also. Do you have a preference one way or the other of of those two particular styles? Um, I like uh, when Morrison, because I, I like when Morrison goes more experimental with his stuff. Because I like, I know some people don't, but I like looking through for all the subtext, for all the clues, for all the hints. Although I think that his mainstream work is just as good. Uh, like I said, All Star Superman, I thought was fantastic. I love his Batman run. And my favorite thing he's ever written, uh, Animal Man, is kind of a merger between uh, those two kinds of Morrison writing styles. And it's something that I think that will appeal to the mainstream as much as it will appeal to 
uh, fans of the more experimental type Morrison. What are, what are your general, you know, just overall sketch thoughts and opinions on Arkham Asylum? Well, okay, I think we should... This has to kind of play into what was going on at this time a little bit. So I know I'm going to kind of step on your toes into what you're going to do next, but I just, I'm just going to toss one thing out, and that's that this came out the same year that we got the Tim Burton Batman movie. Mm-hmm. And so... And it's sold, I think it is the best-selling graphic novel ever published. It sold about 500,000 copies because it was published during that wave of Batmania. It sold more than Watchmen? Original graphic Original, novel. oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Because okay. graphic novel, trade paperback, hardcover, that sort of thing. But original graphic novel, I'm pretty sure it's the best-selling of all time. I believe you're right, yeah. But it's kind of what we got uh, funnily enough, it's kind of what we got uh, with Morrison and Batman movies uh, recently in that uh, The Dark Knight was you know, released in the midst of Morrison doing his Batman R.I.P. story, which was the culmination of what he'd been doing for two years. So he can't really stop. And it's not exactly the most accessible story if you're coming in blind. Uh, to Batman. It's really a culmination of everything he'd been building up to. So, it isn't exactly the best thing you'd want to get somebody who had just seen The Dark Knight, you know, into Batman. And that's kind of what i say for somebody coming in off of the Batman movie in 1989, it's not exactly the first thing you want to give them either. Because it's very chaotic, it's very, it's not straightforward, very much, I guess, and it kind of is. Um, as far as when we get to Batman going through the asylum, it kind of is. But you get the jumps between Amadeus Arkham's journal and into the present, and it's very jumpy with that, and it's very psychological, and it's not very conventional. I guess is what I'm trying to say in terms of a Batman comic uh, going on at that time. And a lot of the subtext uh, in the book, which I'm going to bring up, which I've mined the uh, Timothy Callahan book for, is stuff that you're not going to be able to pick out unless you know what you're looking for. It's very specific. It's very it's very well-structured, I'd say, with what Morrison did, but it's not something you're going to be able to pick out underlying it, the symbolism and everything, unless you're in the know about what Morrison was trying to go for. So it's, I think it's kind of inaccessible, and I think it it works. It For some people, it'll work uh, on the surface level, uh, just reading it without trying to pick through the subtext. For some people, it may not. It's a very, of all the things I've read by Morrison, it's, a, it's the one that I can probably see people most divided on because it's something that you're either going to be able to get into or it's going to turn you off. It's very hard to uh, describe it personally. Uh, I liked it going into the surface view and I like it even more now that I see the deeper level behind it. But I can certainly see how people will would be turned off by it. I uh now let me see. You you were not around in in 89 for this, right? I was born December 30th of 89. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you were sort so of I was barely, barely there. <laughs> okay. No, I, I mean, I literally bought this the day it came out. 
you know, I, I, I went to the books. I, I was anticipating it very much. I looked through my collection. I have a, a large, large collection of, I believe they're called direct currents. It used to be, before that it was something else. It was DC releases, I think. And it was almost like a, like a handout or something. It was almost like a, like a flyer you would get in the mail. And then they stopped that sometime in 88 and they went to something called direct currents. And I looked it up and I've got most of 89, but I'm missing one or two months. And I think I must be missing the month that this came out because I couldn't find the solicits. I really wanted that for this show and could not find it. But I was a huge, huge Batman fan at this time. Um, Batman was... In a minor sense, another one of my gateway drugs. You know, I always credit that really to being, you know, Star Wars and Superman, you know, my gateway drugs into, into comics, but right. Batman was to a lesser degree as well. I really got hooked very quickly on, uh, detective comics, especially because at that time, um, Pat Broderick was the artist on that book when I started picking it up off the rack and just fell in love with his Batman somehow. Anyway, I recall this book being solicited pretty much like a normal Batman book, you know, just that it was a big event, you know, it was going to be worth the $25. DC knew it was a lot of money to be asking of the fans, but, you know, it was going to blow your socks off and you were really, really going to love it. So, you know, of course, being the Bat fan I was, and I had to go out and get anything, you know, anything that was coming out Batman at that time, I was buying it, you know, along with Superman. So I snapped this up and... I will admit, I'm not the reader you're talking about. I'm not one of these guys that's going to go grab the Encyclopedia Britannica and go through and, and look up every single reference and every little thing trying to figure out what's the deeper meaning of this. I'm, you know, but, you know, on the same token, I'm, I, you know, I don't like to read spidey stupid stories either, you know. I, I, I want a, I want a good comic. <laughs> right. But I don't want something that's all head trippy and it's going to take me, you know, years to figure out what the hell the artist or the writer was talking about either. So, you know, being a kid of, uh, of 21 at the time, you know, who had grown up pretty much on just regular mainstream comics, I read this and just walked away going, all right, this has got to be the worst thing I've ever read. And certainly the worst Batman story I'd ever read. I it just, the character seemed completely out of character to me. He doesn't well, there's, seem like there's Batman a reason for at that. all. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to you telling me what, what the deal is with that because I still have that feeling every time I walk away from this book is that there are parts of it that I really enjoy. It's Batman that I don't like overall. Okay. And there's, there's other aspects as well, but primarily the thing that ruins it for me is that Batman just doesn't act like Batman in this, in the way he talks, in the things that he does, or rather the things he does not do. <laughs> Guess the joke is on me. You're not Batman after all. And the art really puts me off. Well, see, I love the art. I think it's perfect for the story. It's chaotic. And just the painterly aspect of it, I think, is just completely perfect for this book. I can't imagine any other artist that could have drawn Arkham Asylum. I like aspects, you know, certain things. And I'll, I'll point some of them out, you know, when you can tell what the hell is going on. <laughs> but there's like nine-tenths of the book that I just can't tell, okay, what is supposed to be happening here? And you are into a madhouse. The, the biggest thing that 
Well, you know, I'll, I'll touch on that at the very end, too, because I just want to tease this. There's one simple thing, one very, very simple thing that Grant Morrison could have done for me, the reader, in this story. One little thing he could have said. It would have taken, you know, a couple of words. And I would have gone, okay, I get it. And it would have helped the story work for me. You know, in fact, I'll even go so far as to say it might have made this story for me. It might have made me walk away going, wow, that was, okay, I get it. That was great. But okay. he didn't do it. And we'll get to that at the end when, when we do our conclusions on this. Because it's that thing that he didn't do that makes me go, okay, I just, all right, I don't get it. I don't understand what, what the point was. So real quick, you know. I want to give a quick history lesson on here. Batman in 1989. You know, we, you mentioned the, the, the Tim Burton movie. For anybody who was not alive or doesn't remember or just wasn't part of comic fandom at the time, 1989 and Batman was like, you know, if you remember when The Phantom Menace came out or yeah. uh, Titanic or, God, I'm trying to think of some other, like, recent just huge movie, you know. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, possibly, yeah, something like that. An event movie, you know, where, where geekdom and fandom was worked to just an absolute fever pitch. I mean, it, it was it was a phenomenon almost unparalleled in cinema. You know, prior to it, the only other things you could really equate it to would be Star Wars or way, way, way back, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, something like that. It was a major moment in motion picture history, despite what you may think of the finished product. Batmania was just that. It was a mania, and it was crazy. So that was what was going on, you know, with Batman in other media. In comics itself, going strictly by cover dates, January of 89 um, in Batman was the last issue of A Death in the Family, where the Joker had beaten Robin to death. And then we went into, you know, what was a pretty standard run of Batman comics with kind of a rotating team. And then in uh, in March, you know, was one of my absolute favorite Batman stories of all time, The Many Deaths of Batman by John Byrne and uh, Jim Aparo. And then we went into year three, which was basically the origin of Robin. And wrapping up the year was uh, the first part of A Lonely Place of Dying in Batman, which would eventually bring in um, Tim Drake as the new Robin. Over in Detective, you know, January started with uh, pretty standard Batman stories, but uh, this was when uh, Norm Brayfogle was still working, you know, still drawing Batman and really making a name for himself. And uh, I miss this guy. I don't know where he is in the world of comics today, if he's even in comics anymore. But, oh, I loved Norm Brayfogle's uh, Batman. So very reminiscent of uh, Neil Adams, I thought. But he had his own distinct style, too, and just did some really great, great stuff. There's no issues in here that particularly stand out to my memory. I mean, it's been a long time since I've read these. You know, 598 through uh, 600, of course, were the ones that were written by the team that, you know, worked on the, the movie that was out at the time itself. And, uh, you know, they were kind of a big deal at the time. But the rest of it, you know, pretty just, you know, standard standard Batman comics for the time. You know, Batman fights the mob or fights some villain or whatever. But, you know, just standard Batman stuff. This was also the year that uh, Legends of the Dark Knight started. That started in uh, 
November of 89, which, you know, that was a different take for Batman. That was billed, at least at the time, it was kind of a failed experiment in the long run, but it was billed at the time as, we just want to tell some Batman stories. And they may not necessarily tie into anything else. They may not necessarily be in any sort of Bat continuity. We're just going to have fun and tell some Batman stories. So almost like an ultimate Batman, if you will, that didn't pan out because eventually, of course, Legends would kind of be integrated right into the Bat universe with the rest of the titles and just become another Bat book, like uh, Detective or Batman. Um, we also saw the first ever Elseworlds book, which was Batman Gotham by Gaslight in 1989. And I mentioned that one, you know, only because, you know, there were a million other Bat books that year also in 89 with, you know, Batmania and all that. But I mentioned that one because I think also Arkham Asylum might work a lot better for me personally if they had built it as an Elseworlds. Then some of the issues I have with Batman acting completely out of character, I could dismiss as, well, this is the Batman of Earth number, you know, 647, and it doesn't really matter. But being billed the way it was, and, I, you know, to my mind, everything I've ever heard, it's supposed to matter, and it's supposed to tie into the Bat universe, that makes it kind of stick out to me that, you know, he does act so weird and wonky and well, out of character. Well, it's a bit, it's a bit iffy. I'll say. Continuity-wise, you mean? Potentially. I'm not... I think we might be on different pages here, but I'll, I'll go into that. I just wanted to chime in that this is somewhat of a reaction to not just to the 80s of Batman in general, because this is where you got, you know, the Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. and everything becoming more gritty, you right. know, and and a definite, would you say it's a definite because uh, how Morrison usually refers to it as the 70s, you had the Neil Adams, hairy-chested love god Batman. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, we kind of got this more tough and gritty type of Batman after Dark Knight Returns came out. So would you say that's an, a correct changeover between the two decades? Not really, because to me, it always kind of pains me a little bit to to hear the 80s Batman portrayed that way, because while it's true post-Dark Knight Returns, I think people tend to forget that there was quite a stretch of time before that book happened, and that's the time that I really came into Batman fully, you know, was, was in that early stretch, about, say, 82, 83, somewhere in there, reading the Batman books of that time. And even though Dark Knight came out and made a a huge splash, it wasn't really until after the Burton movie, at least I feel, that the character really, you know, the the, the incontinuity Batman really started to mutate and really started to change and reflect all these new things that were now part of the mass conscious about Batman, like Dark Knight and the Batman, you know, the uh, Burton movie and Arkham Asylum. So I think that the 80s sometimes gets mischaracterized because people look back and go, oh, Dark Knight, that was the big Batman thing. And then they characterize the entire decade that way. And that's really not the truth. Really, Batman didn't change a whole lot from that 70s <laughs> you call him the love god i you know he didn't that's change that's morrison yeah i mean he didn't change that much he he really was i would say if you've ever watched the 
first few seasons of Batman the Animated Series, before he went to the black costume and the and the deeper voice and the more streamlined look and all that, mm-hmm. that first couple of seasons is very much the 80s Batman. That's how he was in the comics. He wasn't quite so angsty and pissed off and dark and brooding and all that. He was more like a guy with a lot of cool gadgets that okay. had, a, had a dark side and had demons that he was fighting, but they weren't consuming him and he wasn't a psychopath. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. Okay, well, that's that was a general generalization on my part. Then I should say that's more of a reaction to the Batman seen in Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. That was a generalization. Well, no, I, I I think it's a valid one that you, that you bring up and say that. I mean, it's not just you that has that impression. I think a lot of people, just people that even lived through it seem to have that recollection that that's how Batman was at the time. And it's really just not true. He he really wasn't like that. He was, uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, I'm not reading this stuff, so maybe I, I, I shouldn't say this, but from my understanding of the current stuff coming out with Dick Grayson as Batman and having a more lighthearted tone to him sounds a lot to me like that 80s Batman. You know, that he's not completely dark and never cracks a smile and all that sort of thing, you know. That just more like the more like the TV, sh- you know, that TV show, that animated series. Okay. I think. All right. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and go into the actual breakdown of the book at this point, and Chris is going to cover the journals of uh, Amadeus Arkham sections, and I'm going to go with uh, with just the the Batman sequences since that's really where I've got most of my problems with this book. So. Uh, so take it away, Chris. Oh, and you had something you wanted to point out about this book uh, before we get going. Yeah. Okay, well, Morrison, he has, there's this one one page in Arkham Asylum where Morrison basically splays out what the book is about, what he's doing with it. And I think it, I should hit upon this page first because I can't really, because we can't really go into it without this, like the entire what this book is being put into place at first. Uh, this is the page uh, where Batman's talking with the Mad Hatter. And the Mad Hatter says, Sometimes, sometimes I think the asylum is ahead. We're inside a huge head that dreams us all into being. Perhaps it's your head, Batman. Arkham is a looking glass, and we are you. And as far, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I have this right if i have this wrong i'm gonna look like a moron but if what i've read uh from my research is correct and what i'm pretty sure what morrison's saying here is that this entire thing is taking place in batman's head hmm (laughs) okay i don't know how i feel about that just having you muse that over because i i got the impression that that's not how you took it no, I, I, at one one of my subsequent rereads over the years, I thought about that, and I, I actually noticed that part and wondered if this, not so much that, I, I don't know, I just wondered if it was like a dream or something, but uh, I, I'll, I'll get back to that at the end because I, you know, again, I, I have a simple solution for why this book didn't work for me, and, and the one thing he could have done 
to to make it work for me. But I, I'm gonna save that till till we're at the very end of this, I think. But okay. yeah, that see that doesn't even knowing that doesn't save it for me. You know what I mean? That the okay. Well, I see. I think I think some of the problem that is because like some of the villain fights that Batman has him with the rogues gallery. There's subtext of why Morrison's using those rogues and what they're supposed to stand for within Batman's psychosis. And there's a lot of mm. allegory throughout it relating to the inside of Batman's mind, which is one of the reasons I think it can be uh, seen as inaccessible is because I think, I think it's, it's played straight sometimes, but the, I think the real, the real, uh, Arkham Asylum is looking at it as inside of Batman's head. Well, that, to me, that kind of presupposes that Batman is mentally disturbed. And I know that this has come up a lot over the years, especially recent years, and that's not a portrayal of Batman that I'm entirely comfortable with, because I don't like to think, I mean, Batman... Well, like, like I said, this is supposed. This is in reaction to the Batman we got in Dark Knight Returns. Right. But I mean, did you think that that Batman was mentally disturbed? Um, I'd say that what that Batman potentially represents, I could see as being disturbed. The, like, kind of more of the Batman we got in the 90s, I could see as more in the line of being mentally disturbed, but I think that there's certainly potential there for Batman to be mentally disturbed, although he's not portrayed as that. I think that the potential is still there, and I think that's what Morrison was doing, was exploring these mental disturbances that could be in Batman that we don't really see. Well, see, I'll agree with what you said about the 90s, because that was my point, is that by the time we got to, say, Infinite Crisis, I think the Batman we were being given in the comics was basically psychotic. But that's my beef with that Batman is I can trace my problems with Batman back to about 89. And that's when I think the the shift began to happen with that character to where he went from whatever he was that was basically still a hero that kids could look up to. Very much the dark side of Superman, if you will, to this guy who's... <laughs> he's kind of psychotic. And I, I'm just not comfortable with that portrayal. I don't see Batman that way. I see Batman as, yes, he's dark and he's brooding, but he's driven. And he's driven by a terrible tragedy that, that happened to him in his youth that motivates him and, you know, makes him kind of a tragic character. But I don't think, I don't know, I'm, I just don't like that, that that's somehow twisted and become this thing where, you know, he's got this fractured psyche and all that. And those kind of portrayals of Batman, I trace directly back to this book, even beyond Dark Knight Returns. Because even in Dark Knight Returns, I don't see him that way. I see him as driven, but not necessarily, you know, a psycho. Right. But that's just, I mean, that's my interpretation, so... Okay. <laughs> Well, digging into this one, where you wanna where you wanna start? Right with the uh, the journals yeah. page, okay? Yeah, let me. I'll kick it off with the, the journals page. All right. Well, well, I should say that we need to. We should start off with the uh, Lewis Carroll quote. 
but I don't want to be among the mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad. How do you know that I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. That's from Alice in Wonderland, which has... is seen. There's references to it throughout the, the book, and that quote kind of sets up, you know, Batman going... It's really... It's Batman going into Arkham, but it's also Batman confronting this supposed madness within his psyche. Works on that level, too, and... Across from that, we have this tarot card of the moon, uh, and this represents uh, a supreme testing of the soul, which goes along with this uh, Batman confronting this uh, these fears and this uh, question. He's basically well, he right there in the in the uh, Jim Gordon sequence we'll get to. He questions, you know, his if he's you know making rational decisions and this moon is kind of setting up that Arkham Asylum is you know basically Batman going into Batman's psyche looking at itself and seeing that if he is really sane or if you know this all these fears and this madness will eventually overcome him and then uh, from there we start off with uh, from the journals of Amadeus Arkham and the basis the whole thing that germinated the idea in in Graham Morrison's mind was reading the entry for Arkham Asylum in Who's Who and then basically hitting upon Amadeus Arkham and wanting to dig deeper into that character. And uh, we see Amadeus uh, walking up the stairs of his house to where his uh, mentally ill mother is uh, and he's trying to get her to eat something and uh, she... Remarks that she's already eaten, and we see uh, these beetles uh, falling out of her mouth. And we later have Amadeus remarking about how the beetle is the symbol of rebirth. And this goes along the lines of what is going to go on with Batman, how Batman's will eventually, uh, throughout the story, he'll conquer uh, these fears and this and his demons, and he'll be reborn as knowing who he is and knowing that what he's doing is uh, sane and knowing that he's not crazy. All right. Now on, uh, let's see, the pages are not numbered here at all, but um, yeah. basically counting from the first page that says from the journals of Amadeus Arkham on the third page, we see the boy looking at his mother's hand and she's got the beetles in her hand. Now, what are these next three panels? Is he dropping the yes. dishes? Okay. Yes, he's dropping the dishes on the tray. Yep. Okay, all right. Because that always looks weird to me. Also, on the very first page, this figure that, that the boy's looking at, now we see Batman looking at something like this later on. What is this? Is this a painting on the wall? or, or um, Well, it, it says um, in, the, in the caption in the panel, it says, until that night in 1901 when I first caught a glimpse of the other world, and the other world, I'm pretty sure, is supposed to be referencing madness because his mother is mentally ill, and we kind of see in the last page of the sequence, we see, basically, I think we're seeing what she sees and seeing her in this other world, which is the state of madness she is, she's in, and Amadeus later in the story comes to, because I guess we should say the... The Amadeus story is 
in continuity, I would say. Mm-hmm. But the Batman portion, which is going on in his mind, is going on in his mind. But I, I'm pretty sure the Amadeus portion is supposed to be in continuity and is actually real. I see. As opposed to being in Batman's mind. And this face is this brief... Glimpse? Glimpse, yeah. Glimpse into the madness, because Amadeus later realizes that he has the same insanity that his mother has. And this is him getting this, I guess, this prick, maybe in the back of his head, that he too is going to end up like his mother. Ah, okay. And it's sort of manifested as uh, this face, because later we have the imagery of the bat, and... You know, Amadeus, when, and that's when, and Amadeus says that he sees it too. I think that's when he fully realizes that he's, that he's also kind of has a few screws loose, like his mother. (laughs) And, but this is just him having this little, like, prick in the back of his mind that he's gonna end up mad like she is. Okay. Alright, well, moving on beyond there, we go to the first Batman section, and, I actually don't mind the art too much during this sequence. Most of it you can tell exactly what's, what's supposed to be going on <laughs> and everything. I well, don't care for the way that Batman is drawn as far as the the ears look really wonky to me, which of course you know, I know that's really nitpicky and the and the cape with the curly Q demon looking things coming up off the back of it. It just I don't know, it just looks funny. Well, I think if he was just more if he was a little more like he was in the third panel down with with like a little bit shorter ears, I think that would be perfect. But the, the things creeping up over the back of him just he's he's drawn like that a lot these days and it bugs me. I just don't like the little curly cue things coming up off the back of his cape. Well, it's sort of partially Dave McKeon's uh, artistic license because he is not a superhero artist. Right. He works in you know, outside of that genre, mostly. Mm-hmm. And this is him, his interpretation of what he sees as Batman is more of this, because you don't see his face. Usually you don't see, like, getting into his eyes. Right. He's just kind of this dark figure that's within the scene. And that's just his interpretation of Batman. And it's certainly not uh, how we're used to seeing Batman drawn. But that's kind of just Dave's, him... Kind of, instead of going all superhero he with it, he's doing it Dave McKeon style. So if he was just all angular and wispy throughout the book like he is in that the very first panel where we see him, I, I would like th- how he was portrayed a little bit better. But I can see that. I don't know, he kind of mutates a bit. Because right there, he's very sleek. But then on the last panel, he's... You know, got the the things sticking up off of him. It almost looks like uh, reminds me of Spawn or something like that, which you know I know came along you know much later, but it, it is kind of what it reminds me of. Anyway, we get the uh, you know the bat signal on a shot of Gotham City, and Batman you know pops up with the commissioner and says you know sorry I'm late. There was problems out of town, and here's my first nitpick. He says, "What's up?" Which just is not a Batman yeah. line to me. You know, that's, yeah. that's always bugged me. You know, Batman saying, "Hey, what's up? What's going I'm, on?" I'm with you, Scott. That also kind of did not strike me as a Batman line either. <laughs> so I'm with you there. So you know, the commissioner gives him the skinny that you know there's been a riot at Arkham Asylum, 
and the inmates have basically, you know, they're, they've taken over the place. They're holding hostages. They've made some wacky demands and, uh, you know, their final demand is that they want to talk to Batman personally. So he points Batman to the phone. We see that the date is April 1st and, you know, he's got it on speakerphone and Batman says, you know, I'm here, you know, Joker, what do you want? And he has a conversation with the Joker and over well, the there's court- a couple there's a couple of things on these two pages in the background because there's three strips of panels that are taking place uh, in the recent past and in the background we have what's going on with the present with Batman at the asylum mm-hmm. uh, for this sequence here so we have him at the asylum in the present and also April 1st is significant because that's when these two major events in Amadeus Arkham's life also happened on April 1st. Mm, okay. I thought it was just significant for uh, for being a- April Fool's Day. That's part of it, too. So he talks to the Joker, you know, over the speakerphone, and, uh, you know, the whole time they're hearing this uh, noise in the background, like a scratching sound in the background, and Batman comes to realize that the, sh- the Joker has been sharpening a pencil which he puts into the eye of a female hostage. And, all right, a <laughs> couple things here. Now, when he's talking to the Joker, there's a sequence here where, you know, he's the Joker says that he wants Batman to come to the asylum. You know, we want you, you know, in here, in the, in the madhouse, where, you know, with us where you belong. And the Batman actually stammers. He says, and... And what if I say no? And it, it, this just bugs me. This is going to come up repeatedly through this book, and I'm sorry to say it, but he, just his portrayal, things he says and the way he acts, that just seems very out of character to me that Batman would stammer. that he would. Well, if you look at it in the context of this being in Batman's mind and not being this straight incontinuity story. He's, yeah, but see, that's, that's no, the see, thing see, is... See, he's stammering because he doesn't want to face these fears and these demons that he, that he has in his in the back of his mind. He doesn't want to face them. And going into the asylum is basically the metaphor for him going in to confront those things, and he doesn't he doesn't want to. All right, but for somebody like me that picks this book up, somebody who who's used to just linear storytelling, especially yeah. linear comics. How how would you reach that conclusion at the end of the story that oh okay this was all in his head or this was well, all it's, a it's dream? The Mad or, Hatter page. I don't know. I mean, I I see what you're saying, but I mean that he just kind of throws it out there. It it doesn't seem like it's a foregone conclusion to me. You know, he he says what you know, basically what if this is all in your head? But well, okay. I think he's saying he's not saying what if he's. It's basically Morrison, and Morrison did it before in Animal Man. He's basically speaking through the Mad Hatter and saying, "This is all happening in Batman's head." It's more of Morrison speaking directly through Mad Hatter to the reader than Mad Hatter saying that. So, which Batman is this then? Is this, you know, Batman's is, at home sleeping, and this is, you know, the the scared little Bruce side of him. You know the little the little well, traumatized kid side of him dreaming this, and that's why he seems so unsure of himself and insecure and unable to to fight back. Or is this? Yeah, you can you can look at this as 
kind of like a nightmare, a nightmare going on inside of Bruce's head while he's sleeping. And I think Morrison in the inter- in the interview in the book also said that it's kind of like Batman sleeping. This battle within his psyche is raging. You know, while he's sleeping, and at the end of the story, uh, Batman kind of conquers these fears that he's had. And Morrison makes the analogy of it, him sleeping through this and then waking up feeling this odd sense of relaxation because he's kind of overcome these fears that are going on in his head. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. And I mean, I, I want you to be perfectly honest with me. Is okay. this a conclusion that average readers, everybody else walks away with and I'm just a big dumbass because I didn't see it before? Or is well, this it, something where you've got to go research it to find out that this was okay. all supposed to be in his head? You don't have to research it to find out and it's in, it's in his head because of that Mad Hatter page, but you might not take the Mad Hatter page the way Morrison intended it to be taken. Right. And that, I can see that, because I think that you said once you got the kind, that kind of made you pause for a moment, but it seems that most of the times you've read this, you've taken it straight. Right. Right. So, it, it depends if you get that Mad Hatter page or not. If you get that at Mad Hatter page, then I think the book makes more, you can make more sense out of the book if you get that Mad Hatter page, but I can see somebody not getting that page, having the problems that you've brought up with it. I can definitely see that. Well, I mean, I, I can see somebody very easily saying I'm just being the the lazy reader, so to speak, but I need books like this to, to at some point lay it out for me. Maybe not come right out and say, this is all in his head, or this is just a dream, or Batman's been conked on the head and he's laying in the alley having this delusion or whatever. But at some point, it would be nice to know that the reason it doesn't make sense, at least to me, is that it's not a linear incontinuity story. And I just don't see even that page that you pointed out. I still don't see it as concretely saying this is not real i see it very much and i mean we'll, we can examine it closer when we get to that page but i just see that page as 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 the mad hatter giving a what if scenario what you know batman have you stopped to consider that maybe this isn't real you know but i don't see him saying like in total recall where the guy comes and tells him this is all just in your head you know do you have the you have the original right mm-hmm. or do you have the 15th edition no. Okay, well, let me just flip through the back. I still has... feel cheated on the original purchase of this. I'm sure as hell not going to shell out more money for another version. I only got it for $18, fool. <laughs> uh, and okay, this was $19.89, damn it. <laughs> okay, alright. This is, okay, this has commentary by Morrison. Okay, going. it has his original pitch. And it has little bits of commentary by Morrison going through it. And he says, The Mad Hatter obligingly explains the book for anyone who hasn't figured it out yet. Okay, so in other words, he, he's saying that you're a dumbass if you don't... If you don't. But see, all right. He's look. not saying you're a dumbass, okay? And, and <laughs> I don't mean to bring this up, but this is something that pisses me off, and I'm not talking specifically to you, Scott, is people thinking that anybody who likes... Morrison, and if you don't get what he's trying to say, you're a dumbass. We don't think that. 
I, I think there are probably some arrogant pricks out there who are fans of Morrison that do think that. I don't think that. I don't think a certain majority of the fans of Morrison, the people who are fans of his writing, when he goes more trippy, as you like to say, think that. Just because you don't get it doesn't make you a dumbass. That just means you took it straight. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm taking it as a literal interpretation of what he's saying. And what the Mad Hatter says is sometimes, sometimes I think the asylum is ahead. And then on the on the page where you're saying that he's laying it out, he says, perhaps it's your head, Batman. He's not saying, Batman, this is all in your head, which I could, I could take that. If, if he was saying... Batman, you realize, of course, that you're just, you know, you're at home in bed sleeping and this is all just a dream. I would have been like, all right, okay, this book makes sense now. I under, I get it now. But he doesn't say that. He's throwing it out there as a possibility. No, it's more of just in the crafty way he's speaking. It's kind of like, haha, I know something you don't know. It's not him saying perhaps. It's him being the crap. Speaking in a crafty, villainous way, than him saying maybe it's a it's a dream. Hmm. All right. He's, he's even smirking in that panel. You can see he's smirking because that part of Batman's mind knows that this is all dream, but this Batman going through this whole thing is thinking that this is straight, and this is. Mad Hatter, this Mad Hatter knowing, going on what's going on. And we even see that panel at the end where it's the looking glass and we see Batman looking at himself. Well, with that in mind, I wonder, <laughs> I have to say, I wonder how much, how much sense it makes to, to go through my nitpicks with the rest of the book because then that, that kind of, all chalks the whole thing up to well, it's a dream, and well, you, know, you might people... have other valid complaints. Just because it's a dream doesn't mean that you don't have. Valid well, I mean, complaints. if it's a dream, then you know, in my dreams, I I can fly, you know, and I mean, so you know, that doesn't add up to any sort of linear. I mean, my dreams never make any sense. So if this is a, a, all a dream, then all of the complaints and all of the issues and all of the just what the hell went on and why is this guy doing this or not doing this, all of that's kind of invalidated then because it's a dream and it doesn't have to make any sense. Right? True. <laughs> so again, I'm left, I'm walking away from it kind of like, okay, I don't, because that that really does invalidate any issues that you've got with it? Well, all right. Let me let me approach it from this angle then. All right. So it, it invalidates any inconsistencies and any any character issues I might have with Batman. But well, I don't think it invalidates him saying what's up. <laughs> but I mean, ultimately, then what's the point of his dream? Uh, let's just, I guess, cut cut to the chase then. Okay. What does? All right. This was one of my issues with this was. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna forgive all my other my other issues with with Batman doing wacky shit like jamming glass through his hand and impaling Killer Croc and all this stuff that's always kind of driven me nuts. I'm gonna chalk all that up to it's a dream. It's in his well, there's head. some specific reasons why he does those things. But the one part of this, even with it being a dream, 
that jumps out and smacks me and makes me go, what? Is where he finally, he runs the gauntlet. He's all done. He gets out and he's in the room and all of a sudden Dr. Cavendish is dressed as Amadeus Arkham's mother and is holding the the female doctor hostage. This comes completely out of left field. What what the hell is his symbolism or whatever with this deal supposed to be? Okay, well, okay, let me okay. Um, do you want to just screw the whole going through the whole book thing and just hit on? Yeah, yeah, through it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, see, I I think I. <laughs> I didn't know that you didn't take it as you. T- I didn't know that you didn't think it was a dream, <laughs> or else maybe I should have told you before we decided to do this thing, because it kind of screws up the entire game plan we had for it. No, I don't um, think. I don't think so. I think it actually saves us a lot of time, and it, it saves me a lot of. It probably saves my friggin' blood pressure, to be honest with you, because I. <laughs> This is one of those things where I, I'm going to have to try, you know, when, when with the original plan of going through this and, and really picking it apart, I was, I kept telling myself, all right, you gotta, you gotta scale it back, you gotta stay calm, you gotta not get worked up, because I took this book to be uh, just another Batman story, you know, the, okay. like, like imagine instead of this being this super deluxe, beautiful edition that it is, that this was an issue of Batman, that this was Batman number 430, that this was the next issue after a death in the family, that if I had read this like that, and that's, that is the way I read it, like it was just another Batman story, and I read it and walked away going, what the fuck did I just read? That wasn't Batman. Batman doesn't jam glass through his hand. Batman doesn't stand by while people get shot in the face. Batman doesn't do this. Batman doesn't do this. So that was what I was prepared to do through this, was point out every single instance where I thought Batman just wasn't being Batman. But you've saved me all that aggravation and the listener's ears on all that aggravation because now I get it that this is all supposed to be in his head. That said, all right. Okay, the Cavendish thing. I don't know that I necessarily agree with you about the Mad Hatter thing, but I'm going to take your word for it. That well, the that's author is going for it. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, if that's so. what he says, then that's, that's what he's going for, and I've just missed it all these years. I still don't see it. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a dick, but I think that's the case. No, I, so I'm that, sorry no, if I sound like a dick. That's fine. No, I mean, I don't think you sound like a dick at all. I'm just, I'm just saying that if that's the writer's intention, then with me personally... He failed because I I didn't see it and I still don't really see it. I I see it as an insinuation okay. of a possibility of what the hell's going on, but I don't see the author telling me flat out, Scott, this is a dream. It's all in Batman's head. I just don't read it that way. I I read it more as the Mad Hatter's fucking with Batman because that's what the Mad Hatter does. You know, that's one of his things is he plays little games with Batman's head. So that's that's how I still read it, even though that's not what the author intended. I, I'm going to reveal the, the thing I was going to say, since we're kind of cutting to the chase on all this. Here's what could have saved this book for me. It was a one simple thing. and he, it Actually, he could have squeezed it in really early in the book. There's a sequence... Where is it here? Way back... All right, there's a panel right after the thing with the telephone. 
Okay. Where, where, you know, they think that the Joker has put a pencil in that girl's eye. And in the background, in the present day tense, we see Batman kneel down and he scrapes his fingers on, I don't know if it's the floor or the ground or something. It's salt. And he, yeah, there's a, a shot of his glove with this white powdery substance on it and it's salt. If Batman had been drugged, or Joker gassed, or something to that effect, if when he went into the actual asylum, there's even the first shot of him actually in the asylum, is a shot of him standing there, and there's all this fog around him. It's very creepy. It's a really good panel. If that had been some sort of mind-trippy Joker gas, I could have bought this whole thing. You know, I could have understood him. But because my my major complaint is still Batman's behavior. You know the way he he acts almost drugged. The the fact that he kind of stands around for a whole lot of this book and just lets things play out. I see that now as very dreamlike. And a lot of times in our dreams we are helpless. We we can't run or, or move or act either as fast as we want or sometimes not even at all in a dream. And I see that metaphor now, whereas I didn't see it before. But reading this as a kid and reading it very metaphor, or excuse me, very linearly without looking for all this metaphor shit, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as a, as Batman not acting in character. So to, to that linear mind, I, I thought, okay, if he'd been Joker gassed, that's the explanation I, I could have lived with. That that could have made the whole thing work for me. But it, it doesn't. It didn't play that way. So I just didn't. I, I've never liked it for that fact. You know what I mean? Well, but that's that's not going with the author's intention for what <laughs> the salt is. Which is Cavendish, you know, being wigging out and trying to exercise Batman from the asylum. Right. Well, let me ask you this, and and you know, you as you said a minute ago, I'm not trying to be a dick, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here for okay. a second. Okay. Okay. I get the whole author's intention thing. Mm-hmm. However, it's like when I tell a joke. You know, this happens a lot of times on the forum. For example, I, I've gotten in a lot of shit sometimes because I'll say something, not realizing that. You can read something on the form completely different from the way the person that typed it intended it to be read. So if you tell a joke or you make an off-color remark or whatever the case may be, and people don't get it, whose fault is that? Is it the writer's fault or is it the reader's fault? And that's kind of my issue with this is that I see what you're saying, that somewhere in print or in an interview or whatever, Grant Morrison has revealed that, oh, this is all in his head. But not knowing that, if I can't pick it up from the text of reading the damn thing, does that mean he failed or does that mean I just, I failed? You know, who is the guilty party here? Oh, you had to ask that, didn't you? Oh, man. Because that's always the thing that comes up with Morrison, is because if I say it's your fault, then I'm going to come off as some Morrison groupie, supposedly higher intelligent person than you because I got a type person, and that's not who I am. 
And if I say, well, see, it's it's one of those things where, okay, it's, it's so obvious to me reading that Mad Hatter page. And even before I got to the end of, it, the first time I read it, even before I read through his script and he said, here, you know, it blandly says out to the reader, blah, 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 blah. Even reading it the first time when I saw that Mad Hatter page, I got what he was going through. I got what Morrison was saying, that this was all... You know, a dream. But you didn't get that. And that's not... That's not... That's just not how you got it. I don't want to say it's Morrison's fault. Because I got it. See? It's... Right. But on the flip side, by the time you got to this book, you knew Grant Morrison. And you knew his writing style. You were looking for it. Whereas when I read this, I'm fairly positive that this was the first exposure I'd ever had, not only to Grant Morrison, but really honestly to this kind of writing, to this kind of story where you weren't supposed to just look at the pretty pictures and read the text, get a story and walk away from it without really super analyzing it. So I did. Okay. I read it like I read any comic book. I pick it up, I read it, I throw it down and I move on to the next one. And this was something you you really can't do that. You've got to to a degree, you've got to pick it apart. You've got to pay attention to what the characters are saying and stop for a minute and look, all right, is the Mad Hatter telling me that this is all in his head? And I don't yep. read that way. I just don't. That's not how my brain operates. I take it when he's saying perhaps that he means perhaps. That he's okay. not, you know what I'm saying? I'm yeah, not trying I, to I be a, a jerk about it. I'm just no, saying no. that's how my brain operates. Yeah, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, okay, if I'm, if I could, if, okay, on fl- the flip side of that flip side of the coin, <laughs> now that you know who Morrison is, can't you look at it? Now, not when you first read it, can you look at it now, and can you see what he's doing with it? Now that you know what kind of writer Morrison is and what he does with his stories, can you now look at it and see what he's doing? I think what I need to do, because I, I'll give you a two-part answer. I, on, the, on the one hand, I do have a certain degree of, oh, I get it now. Yeah, I do. Okay. I, I have the same degree of that, the same way I would have it if if that had been some sort of drug on Batman's glove rather than just salt. I would have had the same thing of I get it now. He's he's in a drug state of mind, or you know, if it had been revealed at the end of the story, you know, Batman wakes up, you know, from a concussion or from a from a nap or something. I, I would have had that same because it does have a beautiful dreamlike feel to the entire story, which makes me right. feel even more like a dumbass for not realizing that it, you know that the that you know the Mad Hatter was saying it was all in his head. But to answer the other part of the question, does that reveal in that that oh I get it now? Does that equate it to my reevaluating the book? That's a tougher question. That that probably entails me putting this back on the shelf for a while and coming back to it again at a later date with a fresh reread, with a fresh knowledge of this isn't going to be referenced in, you know, Batman's secret files because it's all in his head. So with that distance and, and with that, that fresh perspective, I might easily pick this up, you know, in another year and read it again and go you know what, this is a damn good book, or, you know, this is this is different, or whatever, but, 
you know, for 20 years, I've had this stuck in my head that this was just <laughs> the shittiest <laughs> Batman story I'd ever read <laughs> because he gets goosed on the ass by the Joker and doesn't break his wrist for it. You know, there's stuff like yeah. that that is stuck with me all this time. And that's going to take a lot to get past. You know what I mean? Well, have I taken that out of the shit barrel for you? A little bit. A little bit, yeah. A okay. little bit in the in the sense of I will grant you that one of the things, despite my overall feeling about the book, one of the you know because I'm not a total hater. I want to get that. I should have said that right from the beginning. I'm not a total oh, hater on this book because there are a lot of elements. You know, for example, the reason I let you run with the with the Arkham, you know, the Almodeus Arkham segments of the book is I like that. I think you could pull that out of this book. And that stands on its own as a, as a really good story. You know, just the, his descent into madness. That part of it I've always enjoyed. It's the Batman elements. And the, the thing with, I really don't like this portrayal of the Joker. And that stands out even more to me now, knowing that this is in Batman's head and that this is how Batman sees the Joker, I guess, in his subconscious, Well, that, that that portrayal was pulled out and used so much by Heath Ledger, you know, that that's odd to me. Because, wait, what? Well, isn't it, don't you see this, this portrayal, this particular version of the Joker as being very... Not at all. Really? This, the Joker is, okay, and this is something I wanted to point out because this is something that, uh, that Morrison introduces in here and he continues to extrapolate on whenever he gets a chance to write the Joker is this whole concept of the Joker having this like this super sense of multiple personality disorder where he continues to reinvent himself and he doesn't stay the same. And this, this explains away like how you had him murdering people in the forties, but then in the fifties he was pretty much harmless and other interpretations of people. This kind of, that, that explains why the Joker can just change on a dime into something different than he was last week. And in in this story, the Joker is supposed to embody this un... and also, um, God, who was it? Clayface. And the Joker in this story is meant to make Batman as uncomfortable as possible. And that's why he's so over-sexualized, you know, towards Batman is because he's trying to break the, the serious... Because for Batman to go through the psychological journey, that tough, outer, dark knight skin that he had has to be cracked for him to, to get to the in, to get to the inside of what Batman is inside and go through this journey throughout his psyche. And to do that, the Joker has to just make him so uncomfortable that he just lashes out at him, and he loses that serious and that grim, you know, sense about him that he has. And that slap on the ass is what brings that house of cards beginning to tumble down. Is that Batman's just so taken aback by the Joker doing that to him? <laughs> He's that not the only to, one. Well, and. <laughs> Yeah, and I could definitely see that. And that's continued with, you know, the Rorschach test and the 
the uh, word association is breaking down the defenses that Bruce puts up. Now, see, my object—that's that's the the that was always the deal breaker scene in this book, and that doesn't hold up under scrutiny now. With with accepting, you know, what you said about this all being in his head, you know, accepting what what the author was going for. Now I I can't really you know my my argument doesn't hold water because now this is all just a dream sequence but initially that that was to me that was like the infamous scene of the book was the uh, was the uh, word association game I never well see one of the big scene. things about it is Batman's relationship with his mother is a big part of this and mm-hmm. his and it. it it comes up, like we were saying, we had Pearl, who was Joker starting to stab in the eye. Right. I'm pretty sure that the razor that Amadeus eventually uses to end his mother's misery was a pearl-handled razor. I'm pretty sure it was. Right. And the pearls from his mother's necklace, these are all connecting with that's a recurring motif going along with one of the central fears in this book is this uh, guilt over his mother's death. Mm -hmm. And that's why the word association breaks him down so rapidly is because that that's the moment that created Batman. That's the moment that changed Bruce from this happy child into, except for very brief moments, you know, here and there, like when with Robin, when Robin came into his life, that kind of broke up that darkness in his life, but it's that that the death of his parents is that one moment that made Bruce who he became, and this is him confronting those events and trying to and overcoming them and seeing that you know what he's doing is you know right and that it's not his fault and he's not crazy as a result of this he's sane and he's being rational. And the course his life has taken is the course it should take. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I got kind of impassioned there. <laughs> oh, no, that no, that's fine. No, I that's what I want. That's that's exactly what I wanted for this episode. Is is I don't know. Like I say, I'm a I'm a kind of lay it all out. Tell me what I'm what I'm supposed to walk away from kind of guy when it comes to reading a story and yeah well like i said with batman 1989 i think that might be why some people who might have seen you know the batman movie and wanted to get into batman and pick this up because they were around the same time might have had the same reaction that you did even as a batman reader because it's very different from what was coming out of the time and i can understand why some people might not like it because it's so different. And I, I certainly don't fault you for having a lay-it-all-on-the-table mindset when when you approach a comic book like this. I, I see how you could have that. I just... And pretty much why I'm a big Morrison fan is I look underneath the rocks throughout the story and see, you know, what this could mean. And not all comics have that. You know, there are... Most of the comics out there have a straightforward lay the cards out on the table kind of uh, storytelling style to them. Right. There are a couple out there, mostly, you know, 
by Morrison, you know, and he does do straightforward stuff, like I said, JLA and All-Star Superman, very straightforward. Uh, but then he does things that are more, you know, there's stuff underneath it that you gotta, you gotta analyze it, you gotta pick through it to find them. And I can see how, you know, somebody who likes, who reads, you know, who sees things when they read it, when they view it as, you know, straightforward cards on the table, beginning to end, that's it, how they might not get this and mm-hmm. it's, it's it's certainly not a fault in how you read you just didn't see it yeah that's that's very much me i mean i i you know like i say i have reread this you know several times since that initial read but of course you know the initial read is always going to stay with me and my you know initial reaction reading this you know i hadn't ever read anything like this and you know to a certain degree I'm going to shift the blame from from myself for not getting it and from Grant Morrison for not, you know, for lack of a better term, for not properly presenting it and shift it really, in at least in my personal experience, more to DC because of, I think the way they marketed the book lent to my, at least for me, to my not getting it because it wasn't marketed as... You know, of course, they're not going to come right out and say, this isn't for our typical Batman. You know, they want to sell copies. So they're going to play it up for the Batman audience, which right, is exactly with the what, movie coming out. Exactly. Yeah, they, yeah. That's exactly how they did it. You know, this was right along with the movie. This was the Batman event of the year. You know, this was the big, you know, hardcover $25 thing that, you know, Bat fans just have to have. And that's how they portrayed it. And, to a certain degree, I, I think that that was almost misrepresenting the product because this was not something that I think if you were like me, just reading the regular monthlies, that you could make that transition easily. Going from you know the story where Batman fights the Penguin for the millionth time to this thing that you really had to super analyze and, and really, you know, you couldn't just skim read this like you can a comic and walk away with the full experience. Because yeah, well, I, like you said, I've read, I read, you know, at least three different works by Morrison before I got to this. Mm-hmm. So I knew what I was going to expect from it, but I can totally see what you're saying, how somebody just reading, you know, the regular Batman title, picking this up, would, they wouldn't look for anything deeper. They would just read it at face value because that's how... They've been reading Batman comics for, you know, 10 or 20 years or whatever. Right. You know, they just wouldn't look underneath that, you know, Grant Morrison thing. And I, and even, and I think that, look, the dream aspect of it is one layer. But then in researching it, going through the, the book, there's so much more that Grant Morrison put in here. All this thing with all these different symbols and these tarot cards and these references to, these other things that are even far and beyond looking at it as Batman in this dream world. So there's just, there's even another level under the dream aspect to it. And I think that, and like I said at the beginning, the whole, that, that second level underneath, you know, the surface, look at the story. I think that is, that will only, you know, only if you're a diehard Morrison guy, you're going to get that because you have to dig, dig for that. If, it, you know, 
then you'll get that whole Batman is in a dream world. But then there's this whole other level that only, you know, the really diehard Morrison guys are going to be able to unearth. So it's, it's, let me ask you another big question. Okay. And this is going to be a kind of a pretentious question, but I've got to ask it. Do you think that this kind of writing belongs in a Batman story? If you, if you know where I'm going with that question. Yeah. Um, well, in the context it was presented, yes. It was, you know, this off-to-the-side original graphic novel. It was not during, you know, the run of the title. Mm-hmm. Now, if they had put Grant Morrison on for an arc of Batman, then I would say that there is valid a valid complaint there because it would just be jarring to go from what was going on in Batman at the time to what Arkham Asylum was doing if you're reading it month to month, you know, within the context of that ongoing title. It would just be too jarring. But that it's off to the side in its own thing. Now, the marketing, you know, I can understand where you're coming from with the marketing because I wasn't there, but drawing from the Batmania at the time... I I can certainly see how mismarketing would definitely have right. you know some off opinions on it, but seeing how they put it out as this original graphic novel off to the side, outside of the regular titles, I think it's a valid form of writing. For it. You're right that they did put it out that way. You, I mean that that was how it was presented. However, taking the marketing thing in, into account, I mean, do you remember? And I guess they're doing it again now. Um, do you remember when the Superman books had the triangle numbers on them? Yep. And you had to, you know, from week to week, you didn't so much follow a title of Superman month to month as you Follow followed the, the different titles by the triangle numbers yep. week to week. Batman at that time was almost like that. You, you you felt compelled to pick up everything that came out Batman because you didn't know what was going to be important and what wasn't. You know, everything at that point, because of the height of Batmania, you know, they really promoted everything that came out like it was important, like it was playing into where Batman was headed and what was going on. So even completely crap books that came out merely to make a buck because of the movie were touted as the next great Batman historical event. This book was no exception. So to a degree, I mean, I see what you're saying about it. You know, it was off to the side and all that. However, again, it's not how it was marketed. And so I almost feel okay. L- let like, me let me give you an example from of market mismarketing with Morrison Batman from recently last uh-huh. year. Batman R.I.P. Okay, Batman R.I.P. was not supposed to be the big event it was. Batman was not going to die at the end of it because it takes place before Final Crisis, so he wasn't going to die. He disappeared for a bit. True. He wasn't going to die. Um, but DC just blew it into this big event. There were crossovers that didn't matter at all because RIP was a combination of everything Morrison had been doing on Batman. You didn't need to read any of the other titles because they were they were in their other places while Morrison's run was going on. You didn't need to read them. 
Now, I could, and this is different from what you're saying from 1989, which is why I'm trying to make this the distinction there. So they basically just overblow RIP in this whole event that they have RIP tags on all you know the titles, which is really to get sales up right. because you didn't need to buy any of those tie-ins to understand what RIP, the actual story of RIP, was telling. And a lot of people probably, you know, bought RIP because it was this big Batman event and bought all the tie-ins, and they were probably really pissed off because, you know, the tie-ins really didn't add anything to the story because it was all what Morrison was doing from the beginning. It had nothing to do with what was going on in Detective or Robin. They were off doing their own thing. Morrison was doing his own thing, and that was leading up to R.I.P., but DC made a big event out of it, and to probably just to sell books, because there's honestly no other reason why they would have tie-ins other than to sell books. And there were a lot of people pissed off by, you know, getting these tie-ins and maybe jumping over and feeling lost because DC Market is this huge event when really it was the storyline in Batman. It was a combination of what Morrison had been doing in Batman, true, but it was just another storyline in Batman. Right. But I can see where you're coming from, from the marketing at that time being, you know, if it's Batman on it, you got to buy it. I can understand where you're coming from. Right. Yeah, that was very much the, the... Atmosphere of the day. Now here's here's something interesting. Um, in the advertisements in the back of the books for Animal Man, they clearly say that it's going to be about Animal Man realizing he's this fictional character. Mm-hmm. They say it right there in the solicitation. Now, if they had said when they were marketing it something about dream-like or dream within the solicitation for the book, kind of like how they market Animal Man now, there's not going to be this what-the-hell factor when you actually read you know, Animal Man because they tell you what's going to happen by the end of it. Now, if they had solicited Arkham Asylum as being dream-like in quotes or even saying dream, then it would probably answer, you know, all the problems you have with it right there. Not all the problems, but as for this, what the story is. Mm-hmm. But they didn't say that when it was marketed at that time. They just said it was this Batman story. Yeah, that my exposure to that is is just the first four issues before, I, I believe it's the fifth issue that's the, the, the infamous Wiley e. Coyote issue that yeah. spawned all the... the Fuhrer and everything, but I only uh, I only have the first four, and I've only read the first four. And one of those, it might even be the fourth issue. I forget. One of those is the one where he met Superman, which mm-hmm. actually I really enjoyed. You know, it didn't seem like to me anyway like it had any of that you know head trippy stuff in it that I don't care for. It was fairly straightforward, and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, but you know. I I feel like I've gotten a reputation over the years. I don't know if it's deserved or undeserved. I mean, I'll, I'll leave that to others to decide. But I feel like I've gotten a reputation over the years of being a Grant Morrison hater. I mean, I don't outright hate the guy. I just don't like... You like that. the mainstream Morrison. Exactly. Yeah, you know? and there's nothing wrong with that. You like being, JLA? Being, 
Oh yeah, Superman. yeah, I really did enjoy. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. I like that, and uh, I mean his uh, creation, the uh, Justice Legion B. I love those guys. I wish they'd come back and get their own series. I thought those guys were fantastic. I, I like that whole concept and and everything. There were elements where some of the you know some of the other Morrison would creep in, and there were elements that you know I might kind of scratch my head over, but. Most of those were just later payoffs, you know, things that he would call back to later on and fill you in, and you'd go, okay, I get it now, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I did like that stuff. And, you know, you, uh, you know, you graciously sent me that copy of, uh, of, uh, All-Star Superman Volume 1. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I felt like it was a little, I felt like that was a balancing act between the two. Yeah. You know, I could see a lot of the subtext stuff in there, and that was easier for me to see because I was so much more familiar with that material, you know, that he was the well he was drawing from. Right. So it maybe it didn't seem quite as, you know, metatextual or whatever, just because I did with that one I did get it. I knew exactly where he was going even when it wasn't straight linear. You know what I mean? Right. Let me let me ask you. I mean, being such a big fan of his and liking that stuff, can you still relate and understand why there are so many people though that don't like that writing style? That don't, yeah, don't get it, or even if they do get it, they just don't like it. Yeah, I can understand. I like like I I've said I'm not trying to come off as somebody like it's like you don't like Morrison, you moron, or anything like that. I can understand why people don't like. When he goes all subtext like and the things he he does when he gets into that mode, I can understand why there are people who miss that kind of stuff or don't even look for that kind of stuff because they like they like their superhero stories to just be able to enjoy it beginning to end without having to analyze every little bit in it. Right, and I I totally understand where you're coming from with that, and I. I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that. You know, if that's how you read comics, that's, you know, that's how you read comics. I, I like picking through, you know, Morrison's stories and seeing what he's trying to say and seeing the clues he's got laid here and there. You know, that's that's what I like. You like just straight through, and that's fine. That's just two different ways that people read comics, and that's neither one's less valid. Like, like the the distinction I have is don't. I don't call you uh, an idiot for not looking for that subtext. Don't, and I'm not talking to you, Sky. I'm saying, you know, because right. this is this is really fuming from the Final Crisis thing. Don't, don't call me like this drug addict guy with a superiority complex because I like that stuff. When I don't say you're an idiot because you don't look for it. Fair enough. I see. I'm not so much worried. Me personally, now speaking, I, I'm not so much worried about being called an idiot because I, I know I'm not. Yeah, I know. I'm just. It, it's no. I know. I know you are. But what my point is is that the the part of it that really pisses me off is uh, another podcaster who will remain nameless. You know, is famously quoted as calling readers like me that don't care for that stuff lazy, that we're lazy readers because we don't want to be bothered to do the research or, or to find out what it was that the author meant or what they were going for. I take real strong objection to that. It's not that I'm lazy. It's just 
comics to me are a particular way, and I just don't care for them when they. Let me let me try to put it a different way. No, I think when I get what you're saying. When you're writing I, in a particular genre, I think there's only so much that you can, for lack of a better term, fuck with that genre before you lose the genre entirely. And something like this book, I think, is for for Batman comics, for you know, for what Batman was in this time period in 1989. I just feel that this is too far a diversion from the bat genre of that era to stand among those other comics, if you follow what I mean. And that well, that's, continues to be my problem with it in that context. Now, does it stand on its own today amongst all the other stuff that's come along since? It's probably actually a little bit tame compared to some of the, the grim and gritty Batman stuff that has come since it was published. But at the time it came out, when I first read it, I, I just felt like this just isn't Batman. It, you know, it, it, it's, and it really isn't. It's really its own different beast that has to be analyzed the way that you just walked me through it in order to see, okay, this is the bigger deal. And, well, I can't decide whether I think that's good or bad comics. I, I just, well, I honestly can't. Well, see, I just, okay, I agree with you that it's wrong for you, for people like you who read linearly, don't look for all the subsects to call them lazy. I disagree with. That's just how you read the comics. You read them. That doesn't mean you're lazy because you don't think to look for that kind of stuff. Because that's just, what. It, thank you. That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's it's not that we don't want to. It's that. You know, our, our brains aren't wired that way. You just want to read a story. You don't want to have to look through every little thing to see if there's a deeper meaning. You just want to read a story and be entertained. Right. And that doesn't mean you're lazy. I mean, sometimes now, a rose is just a rose, you know, and I don't yeah. want to have to stop and go consult some, you know, Wikipedia entry to figure out, okay, what was this rose supposed to represent? <laughs> mean. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, how long would it take you to read, uh, you know, anything if you had to analyze every panel. Yeah. Maybe that is a certain degree of... But you know what I'm getting at is that... Yeah, I understand what you're coming you from, know, but... There are people... You know, I know I'm not the only one. There are people that their their brain just isn't wired for looking for that deeper thing. You know, we're focusing on... And this is where my objection to the laziness label comes in, is that I'm not reading it like... You, know, you can watch a movie and turn your brain completely off. I don't think you can read and turn your brain completely off. If no. I'm reading a Batman, you know, a standard monthly Batman, I'm not just sitting there and reading Spidey Super Stories. I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, maybe I'm trying to figure out what the detective angle is or who the who done it or whatever. I'm not being lazy. I'm looking at it as it's presented. Uh, okay, this is a mystery story, or okay, this is a Batman's got to figure, you know, put the clues together and figure out, you know, where the Joker's hiding or whatever. I'll read that way, you know, in the mystery angle or whatever, or, you know, gee, I wonder if Superman will remember that three issues ago that this guy, you know, gave him a wedgie or whatever. That kind of shit, you know, but I'm not looking at, gee, is that spit curl in Superman's hair, you know, that's supposed to stand for, you know, the crucifixion of Christ. My brain just doesn't work that way. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I disagree with what you're saying about this 
it should have been held back because it wasn't in lieu in the same line as the other books during that time. I mean, Watchmen was published in 1986, and there's all sorts of commentary and subtext going through that, too. <laughs> I largely don't out. like and get that book either, so... Well, yeah, <laughs> but look, what I'm trying to say is that at this time, there was experimentation going on right. in comics. There were things being tweaked, and I think Morrison was on Animal Man by this point, and they might have been getting into Doom Patrol by this point, and he was starting to do the experimentation. And it, like at the quote I read at the beginning about him looking at this as more of an experimental art film than a typical, you know, superhero comic. It's him right. experimenting with the with the genre, what he can do in it, and doing something different from the norm. And I can understand not, you know, seeing, you know, exact not reading into it and seeing what he's doing, but I don't agree with it being invalid being published at that time no, no, just no, no, because no. it wasn't in line with what was being what was the norm. I don't mean it I don't quite mean it that way. Actually you, you you've you've stumbled right on my what I what I mean, my entire point. You, you just made okay. me realize where I was going with this. You know, you mentioned Watchmen and uh, Animal Man and something else a moment ago. Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol. Alright. Those the thing that that works with them to my mind, and, and I hope this doesn't piss you off. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Okay. Is I'll that try. to somebody like me who is a big two kind of guy, reading your Superman and your Batman and your Hulk and your Spider-Man, those books, and forgive me for saying it, are easily ignored because they're not part of that story. They're not part of the continuity. They're not part... They don't. What happens in Animal Man and Doom Patrol doesn't mean shit to what's going on in JLA or Superman or Wonder Woman. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And that's kind of where I feel wronged by Arkham Asylum because being the Batman fan I was then, I was buying everything Batman. And for the way this book was presented, it, it's not. A typical Batman. I mean, you'll agree, right? That it's not a typical Batman story. Well, Dark Knight so, Returns wasn't a typical Batman story. Batman stories weren't told in the future with him kicking mutant ass and but you went into jokers that, and theme right, parts. But you went into that book knowing that this was Elseworlds before there were Elseworlds. I mean, you, you knew okay. going into that book that... Okay, this doesn't tie into the well, see, next issue. Now we're getting into the whole disclarity on the marketing again. Well, but, but that I think that's important in this. I think that's a lot of the reason why that this book didn't didn't work for me. And I agree from what you told me about it, the marketing. I agree that it didn't work for you, but I still don't see why this would be invalid because it it and okay, Animal Man and Doom Patrol. Okay, they. Doom Patrol, I think it might have been suggested for mature readers when Morrison got onto it, but I'm pretty sure Animal Man was still considered to be an in-DC... I mean, it had a crossover with Invasion, I think it was, or some crossover by DC at that time, so it was treated as an in-continuity DC book. Right. Now, now Morrison was doing stuff that might have meant Jack all to JLA, but that still means... That it was still an in DC universe book, regardless of whether it impacts another book in the universe. Right. So just because it doesn't, and 
I don't mean to come off as a tool, but do, just because it didn't impact what you were reading doesn't mean it has no impact at all. No, no, no. That's that's not what I'm saying. What I, what I'm saying is that it exists almost as its own entity. Well, so if it wants to yeah. get weird, like it, you know, my understanding. Granted, I haven't read it, so correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that book got really strange by the time it was over. So yeah, it had went on his own with it. Right. I, okay. So it has what what I'm saying is it has freedom to do that. It's almost like being an independent book or like being what what eventually would be the vertical line. So yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying was. is yeah. something like Arkham Asylum to me granted there were no else worlds when this book came out. There were no vertigo then, was there it? was no vertigo. Yeah. But so it, I, ha- I hesitate to say that this book needed a warning label, but I almost feel like that. I almost feel like it needed a, a, a Surgeon General warning disclaimer on it. Warning, this is not the Batman that you're reading month to month, Scott. You may not enjoy this product. You know, Please consult your physician. I almost feel like it needed that in order for me to understand that you're not going to read this with the same way you're reading this month's issue of Detective. And they yeah. didn't do that, and I read it that way, and I for 20 years I've hated this book, and, and I almost really feel a, a whole new pissed off about it in the sense that I, I feel like, you know, for 20 years I feel like DC ripped me off. Now I feel like for 20 years DC screwed me out of a book that I probably should have really enjoyed if they just marketed the damn thing correctly. Yeah, I see where you're coming from with that. Now do you see right? Yeah, that, that's the point I'm trying to make is that I'm not saying the book's invalid or, or anything like that. I'm saying that it's just... It should have been marketed better. Yeah, the, the <laughs> presentation of it de- denied me whatever it was that the author was going for in all these years. And that that's frustrating. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Does that, you know... I, I guess cutting to the chase, does that change my my opinion of it? Yeah, to a certain degree, it really does. I'm not saying that now it's my my favorite book, but I think the next time that I that I give it a look through, it it'll be with a different perspective and a, and a different, probably a different appreciation for it because I have always really liked that dreamlike quality of it. And now knowing that, well, duh, that was what he was going for. Well, you know, then that that does add that much more to it for me. So yeah, and see, when I said when we were going to do the show, I told you I didn't want to prove you wrong because I certainly respect your opinion. But I I am glad that I was able to help you see what Morrison was trying to do more with it. And I'm not trying to convert you to the other side, but I am glad I could show you that other side too. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in in fairness, you know, if we're given disclaimers here, in fairness, you know, you, you'll never do that because I, I have to be oh, I know. perfectly I know. honest and tell you I'm still not – that's still not my preferred type of type of comics really. I know, but I still it, don't I like was that. able to move your shitometer up, down a couple notches. <laughs> so <laughs> – well, that was my intention. That really was my intention. You know, I, I told you when I when I asked you here for this show that that was my my intention was not to do a versus episode. You know, it wasn't right, yeah. you versus me, and you know, this book sucks. Me and, you know, that was never my intention. My intention 
honestly, right from the get-go was, Chris, I don't get this fucking book. Help me out, man. What am I not seeing? You know? <laughs> and if I could stomach another viewing of Dark Knight, I might have you help me with that one. But I, I'm sorry, I can't do that movie again. I just really hey, can't. That's fine. I, I, is that no. is that movie a dream? <laughs> That's it. It's a dream. That high. It makes perfect sense now. I get it now. Our Star Trek, the new Star Trek's a dream. I get it now. All right. Okay. See. Guess what? What's going on in the Superman books right now? It's all a dream. All right. I've probably been hitting the head at work and don't realize it or something. I'll wake up tomorrow and be like, oh shit, Burns still doing Superman. This shit rules. I do want to invite you back, actually, for I don't know when, I don't know how, but at some point, I want to do a couple more Batmans. And uh, it's actually been requested that I give my thoughts on Batman 89, the, the Burton movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'd like to do that. I, I'd really like to reexamine that. And, and you know that's another one that I have very strong, mostly negative feelings about. But it'd be fun to, you know, I haven't watched that movie in a long time, so it'd be fun to re-examine that and, and, you know, just take a solid look at it if you'd be interested. And then I really have been itching for the longest time to do a solid episode of my favorite Batman um, incarnation of probably the last 20 years, which was uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the animated movie. Oh, yeah. I hold that up as this is everything Batman has ever been and should ever be. I, I just, I think it, that's a masterpiece of Batman work right there. And, uh, I told you before, Scott, I think that is the best Batman movie period. Oh, Live yeah. action, animation, whatever. It's, it's, it's the best Batman movie. Oh, so I would, I would love to talk that movie with you. Great. Well, we'll definitely have to do that then. Cause, uh, yeah, I'm itching for that one. And, uh, I think that would make for some entertaining listening. So, yeah, <laughs> What do you got? Final thoughts on uh, Arkham Asylum? Wow, we kind of we kind of we kind of shifted the discussion from the the book into as a story into the book as you know a book uh, in the grand scheme of things, and that's fine because I had a I had a blast discussing it with you. I thought we had a great discussion on it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I certainly I I see. <laughs> And not to make you feel old, but since I wasn't around for when this originally came out, I certainly see, you know, I understand where you're coming from on it. And I see, you know, what impacted why originally when you first read it, you know, you weren't really grooving on it. So, you know, I see totally where you're coming from and I see why you had the issues with it you did. Well, I mean, I appreciate that that you laid out, you know, even though it, it derailed us from our, our intended breakdown of the issue, yeah. <laughs> you know, with laying out the thing with the, with the Mad Hatter, the way you did, it, it, it actually saved a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of time and a lot of angsty really going off about the book because I mean, I do have like super detailed notes on like every little nitpick, but you know, it all really, it, it's all a wash really. Because the dream aspect really does change things. You know, I, I honestly, what I need to do, I really just need to reread the thing with that in mind. And I bet you it's going to be a completely different read for me. Because it, then it reads more like, you know, what I took to be this 
just pussy-ass Batman standing around letting people be shot in the face and stuff and screaming at the book going, what the, why aren't you breaking these people in two? You know, now I, I, I can approach it with a different aspect of, you know, okay, you know, this this is some aspect of his of his dream state that's not allowing him to act and all he can do is smash the mirror in frustration after the fact you know I, I i think maybe i'm starting to figure some of this shit out now i don't know well i still have you know i've got my notes all written down so maybe you know when you reread it you know whenever that may be maybe we can come back and go through it like we intended to originally that's an idea that's definitely an idea cool Hey, thanks for joining us for this very special episode, folks. Your time and attention to listen to us each and every week is very much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed it, and again, big thanks to my buddy Chris Johnson for joining me for this show. We want to hear your thoughts on Arkham Asylum, both the book itself and this episode, so please stay tuned for details on the multitude of ways in which you can share your opinions with us after the show. Next week, we'll present a special bonus fifth week episode. And then, after that, be sure to be right back here at the top of the month of September for the first installment of the Two True Freaks Movie Month Marathon, in which we'll kind of forego our regular breakdowns of Star Wars, Star Trek, and comic book talk, and instead present movie talk for each of those genres, plus a special mystery movie episode for the fourth week of the month. It's Movie Marathon Month all September long with two true freaks. Join us or face the wrath of Darth Vader. We got a learning disability here. Two True Freaks is now a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. Be sure to drop by the network at www.comicspodcast.com. Check out their ton of other fine podcasts and be sure to tell them that Two True Freaks sent you. Take care. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the 2TrueFreaks podcast. 2TrueFreaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Core of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. Well, did you have a good time, even though we, uh, we diverted way the hell off our intended... Oh. I, I think it actually plays for a better episode because I don't come off as just another – it's not another Dark Knight episode. And I don't yeah. need another Dark Knight episode. I really don't. Uh, I had a blast. You know, I, this was not what I expected we were going to do through, you know, the whole episode. But I thought that, you know, we had a really great discussion on the book as itself. And I, I had a blast. I thought it was great. Cool. Excellent. I'm glad I'm- – I'm really glad to hear you say that. Well, that was fun. Who's for Chinese?